Bibles and turn with me to the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17. Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17. I want to read a couple portions of Scripture to you. Oftentimes when we turn to the book of Malachi, people think that we're talking about tithing, and he does address that in there. That's one of the symptoms of people having turned away from God. But Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, it says, You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied you, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. For where is the God of justice? Then skipping down to chapter 3, down to verse 5. God says this to them, so I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. Why don't you say that with me? I, the Lord, do not change. God, he says, I don't change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, were not destroyed. For since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. And as we were doing a prayer before service, the idea of, you know what, when God tells us to return to the Lord, Sometimes what people think is almost like, remember when you were a kid and you'd go out and walk in the snow? And you'd walk around in the snow and, and you look at you kind of went here and you went there and you went here and there and all through. A lot of times people, they think whenever God says to return to him, it means they have to go back and retrace all of their steps that got them to the place where they are. When God speaks to us about returning to the Lord, you know what he's really saying to us? He's saying to the person, no matter where you find yourself, you may be in a really desperate place. You may be kind of feeling like you're in quicksand. You may feel like you are far, far from God. But what God says is when he says return to him, the reality of it is this. It's as simple as turning your face towards the sun. That's really what it is. It's when we return to him, we're just turning our face back to him. Now remember Peter during the middle of the storm. Jesus comes walking to him on the water. And as Jesus comes walking to him on the water, Peter calls out to him and says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Jesus said, come. So imagine Peter. He steps out of the boat. He's walking on top of the waves. And the scripture says that his attention went off of the Lord and he began to look at the waves and at the winds. And he began to see his circumstances. For him to do that, he had to take his focus off of the Lord and he looked at his circumstances. And what happens whenever he took his focus off the Lord? Anybody? He began to sink. Yeah. He began to sink. But as he began to sink, he called out to the Lord. And so when God is talking to us today, when he says about returning to me, he says, I'm the Lord, I don't change. I want you to hear this. This is important to our message today. The Lord doesn't change. Circumstances change. Society changes. People change. A lot of things around us change. But God says, I am the Lord. I change not. Okay? When you find yourself in a difficult place, 
towards him, friend, he will come and rescue you. It doesn't matter where you are or your circumstances or what is going on. When you turn your face towards him, that's what he's looking for. And here's one of the things. God says he doesn't change. But how do we know what God thinks about things? When I was a kid growing up, some of you may be able to identify this. My parents were very clear on their instructions. There were things that we were supposed to do and there were things we weren't supposed to do. When I did things that I wasn't supposed to do, usually there came an immediate consequence. Any of you experienced that? You know? That's, you know, they'd say to you, tell your child, listen, you know, you see your kid, they get the keys. How many of your little kids did this? They got your keys or something like that, and they love to find the outlets in your house. Any of your little ones do that? And they try to stick the key in the outlet. From when I was a kid, I stuck a can opener in the outlet. And that thing, you know. Now, some people will say, some parents will be like, listen, it's only one time. It's not going to kill him. It'll learn a good lesson. I don't know if it's the best way to teach your kids. A lot of times with little ones, when they do something wrong, when I was little, if you touch something you weren't, they'd say, no, don't do that. And you kept doing it. They would. They didn't take out a hammer and crush my hands. They didn't kick me in the face. They smacked my hands so that it was like, ow. And I learned, you know, it's, it's incredible. When they say no and they snap your hands, you're like, okay, I can't keep doing that. Or maybe, how many of you ever got flipped in the back of the head? In the ear. In the ear. Anyone else get that? There's a few. I'm seeing some old timers here getting that. Everybody thinks it's people. But whenever your parent does that, and they teach a child something where immediately they do something they shouldn't. They say, no, it's not this stuff of, no. <laughs> no, it was like, no, you don't do that. And stop their hand or bring some type of consequence immediately. And the child knows that they shouldn't do that. What's confusing to a person, and sometimes us as Christians, is whenever we do something wrong, and then there's no consequence. You know you shouldn't be doing it, but you do it, and you think, initially, if I do this, there's going to lightning that's going to strike me. But you do it, and lightning doesn't strike them. And, in fact, you do things that are wrong, and sometimes it seems to work out better. And have you ever seen that? You do something that's wrong, and the person who's doing something wrong, it actually seems to work out better than the person doing right. And after a while, what happens? People become emboldened even in their sin. And people begin to question, did God really say that? Well, Pastor, what's the big deal? I can do what I want and God doesn't strike me. In fact, it seems like, it seems like maybe what you're teaching me, maybe what I read from his word isn't even true. Maybe God changed his mind on these circumstances or on these situations. The scripture says this, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it would make sense that I can take a look at scripture and find an indication of how God thinks about certain things. But what if the culture says, it's okay now? Well, wait a minute, we just read I'm the Lord, I change not. But what if the Christian blogger who has a million people reading 
stance on it. Well, God says, I'm the Lord, and I change not. But what if my denomination, what if the Methodists or the Baptists or the Lutherans or the Mennonites or the Assemblies of God or the Independent, what if they change, what if a whole group of churches change their stance on it? Well, the Lord still says, I'm the Lord and I change not. Is it okay in the portion of the scripture that we read there in Malachi, is it okay now to commit adultery? He says, God said, he says, I'll be quick to testify against the sorcerer, the adulterer, perjurer, against those who defraud laborers. So, is it okay now to commit adultery? Is it okay now to engage in witchcraft, to lie, to defraud your workers, or take advantage of weak people, as we read in Malachi? Well, no, the Lord says, I'm the Lord and I change not. In Matthew 11, Jesus goes to the towns where the majority of his miracles had been performed. You know that the majority of Jesus' miracles were performed in a small area surrounding the Galilee region. Really on the banks of the Galilee, a lot of his miracles, Capernaum and Bethsaida, and a lot of his miracles took place right there. Jesus pronounces judgment on them because they refused to repent. And he says, Matthew 11, 24, but I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah for just a moment. In Genesis 18 and 19, it recounts the story of Abram being visited by the Lord and two angels. When he came, that's whenever the Lord spoke to Abram and said, and Pastor Ben spoke about it a couple weeks ago, where the Lord said to them, you're going to have a, and when I come back in a year, you're going to have a son. And Sarah's in the tent, and she starts laughing. I'm 90 years old, and I'm going to have a son now. And as the Lord gives that to them, as he's leaving, the Lord kind of stops for a minute, and he says to them, I need to tell Abram what's going on. And so he tells Abram about the judgment that he's going to bring upon the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, because their evil has risen to such a level, okay? It's finally ascended to heaven, their evil, their wickedness has hit this point where God says, I'm going to judge them. And you remember what Abram did? Abram was, some of you ladies, when you go shopping at the yard sales, you're a negotiator, okay? And Abram begins to negotiate with God. And he says, listen, there's 50 righteous people. There's 50 righteous people. Will you save the city? God says, for 50 people, I'll save it. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is a gracious God. He's looking to pardon people. He's looking for people to find, to take the escape way out. So he comes back to him and says, well, what about 40? I says, yeah, you've had 40 righteous. Well, Lord, I don't mean to press it, but what about 30? We have for 30. I'll do it. Well, Lord, for 20, would you do it? For the sake of 20 righteous, I'll not judge Sodom. Well, what about for the sake of 10? If you find 10, Abram, if there's 10 righteous there, I will not judge that city. For the sake of 10 righteous people. So, according to the scripture, the Lord stayed with Abram, and the two angels go down into the city of Sodom. When they get into the city of Sodom, who do they find sitting at the gate, which is where the leaders of the town would be? Remember, we go back in Scripture, and it says, Lot 
pitched his tent towards Sodom. He had all the places he could look, and he looked off in the distance towards Sodom. He wasn't there yet, but he was longing to be there. There was something about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah that drew him, much like things in this world kind of lull and pull at people. And he saw it off in the distance, and before you know it, there he is sitting at the city gates, and the angels come in, and he invites them. He doesn't know that they're angels, but he invites them to his house to spend the night. And they say, well, no, we'll spend the night here in the square. And he's like, nah, you don't want to spend the night here. When they get into his house, he shuts the door, and the men of the city gather around, and they begin to knock on the door, and this is what they say. It's a lot. They say, send out those two men that we may have sex with them. Now, Lot, the righteous guy that he is, Lot steps out and he says, wait a minute, I have two virgin daughters. Let me give you my daughters and you can rape them tonight. Can you believe that? He comes to a point where he says, I have two virgin daughters who've never slept with a man. How about I give you my daughters and you ravage them, you do whatever you want, the whole crowd of you, you do anything you want to them tonight. I'll give you my little girls. So Lot tries to give them his daughters for them to rape and do anything they want as a crowd. Rape them, do anything you want to them. They've never been with a man. And they say, no, we don't want your daughters. We want to have sex with these men. And so they begin to press on the door. And according to Scripture, the angels had to reach out and grab a hold of Lot and pull him back in and shut the door. And then they were pressing on the door so much that the angels had to strike them with blindness. Okay? There's a Scripture we're going to look at next. As they strike them with blindness, they say, Lot, God's bringing judgment upon this city. You need to get out. If you have anybody else other than your immediate family, and he said, well, I got two son-in-laws that are pledged to marry my daughters. And he said, well, you need to get them. So the people are out there, this crowd, this mob of people who want to rape the angels are there. And they're struck with blindness, so they're confused. There's a lot of turmoil going on. And so, so Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. That sounds like something that's familiar today. Anytime you talk about God bringing judgment upon a nation or upon a people, people think it's a joke. Come on. I've heard that for a long time. Come on. He's old school. He's not hip. He's not in touch. And they thought it was a joke. And according to Scripture, the angels literally had to drag them, to take them by the hand and drag them out of the city. Can I say this to you? That that's very familiar to a lot of people who are in the body of Christ. There's a lot of you, and if you would tell us the truth, there's been times where God's grabbed you by the back of the collar and pulled you out of places you weren't supposed to be. He's rescued you. You were starting to go somewhere. You were starting to have an attitude some way. You were starting to do some things. And God has literally had to grab a hold of you. He's put roadblocks in front of you to preserve you and keep you. And you need to praise Him and thank Him for that. Because that's His grace and His love in your life. He comes again and again and He rescues us and He protects us. And that's exactly what He was doing with Lot and his family. He literally, those angels drug them out according to scripture and pulled them out and preserved them. And then the next verse says in verse 24, then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. 
Hamas, he overthrew those cities and into our plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. What was the sin of Sodom? I'm going to tell you what it's not. If you read these online Christian, supposedly Christian things, and you read some theologians, I'll tell you what they are. They are backsliders. They are deceivers. They are not speaking the truth. You can get online or you can read certain things that will say that the sin of Sodom is that they were not being hospitable to people. All you got to do is read online. That's what people say. They say, that was the sin of Sodom. No, the sin of Sodom was perversion. The sin of Sodom, you know, from the time I was a little kid, I understood it. It was perversion. It was immorality. It was all of this vileness. You don't read that the sin of Sodom, according to Scripture, was that they were not being hospitable. They were perverted and they wanted to rape the angels and God brought judgment. The town was filled with lust, immorality, perversion, homosexuality, and God determined he was going to judge it. Let me ask you a question. Does God change? According to Scripture, we just read. He said, I'm the Lord and I change not. Is he now cool with perversion? Is he now cool with immorality? Is he now cool with people doing whatever they desire, whatever their flesh desires to do? Sometimes sin kind of raises up to a level where you're like, even the hardened people are, oh, that's sick. Last week I read in the paper, it was Penn Live, a gentleman, well, not a gentleman, a pervert, a weirdo, um, let's spot him what he is, a pedophile, a 20-year-old man took a six-year-old little boy and he was raping and molesting him. That wasn't enough. He's from Carlisle. It's on the internet. Connects with a 62-year-old man who's married, lives in a nice house. They showed his house. Who's married, living in Harrisburg. The man's married, has a wife. He also has AIDS. These two men connect over the internet and come together to this man's house. He brings a six-year-old little boy. They set up video cameras connect to the internet, so that other people can log on and watch, and these two men raped together, raped the six-year-old little boy. And it's not enough for them just to do that. They videotaped it and put it on the internet so other people can log in and watch this little boy live being raped and molested. And we see this stuff and we say, you're okay with it, God, right? Because you didn't stop anybody's hands. And they'll spend couple years in jail and they'll get back out and do it again. The guy was already in there, 62-year-old guy was already in there before for the same thing. And so we'll stop there, we'll stop for him. We stand back and we say, well, God needs to be okay with it because he doesn't do anything. Now, here's the thing. When we bring out something like that, some of you are probably kind of sick to your stomach. I know I was, so it was horrible to hear. But we hear of other sin and we think that, well, yeah, well, I know God wouldn't be okay with two men raping a six-year-old boy at the same time and videotaping it and showing it on the internet. I know that God wouldn't be okay with that. But maybe God's okay with all other kinds of immorality. Listen to me. He said, I'm the Lord and I don't change. I change God. Because society says it's okay now. He doesn't say it's okay. Because he doesn't strike somebody dead immediately. He's not saying it's okay now. So I was preparing this. I was thinking about certain things, our government and our legislators, and how offensive some of those things are to God. I'm going to touch on that, but let me talk about the state of the church in America. 
It's filled with sexual immorality. Single people are living together, and they're living in sin. It's called sin. It's sin. He hasn't changed his standard because 50% of the people do it. He hasn't changed his standard because 52% do it. He still calls it sin. And you may say, well, we don't live together. He or she just stops over on Friday nights. No, it's sin. The Bible refers to that as fornication. And I want to tell you something. The Bible says there won't be any fornicators in heaven. Listen, if you continue in sin and rebellion against God, he says there's a certain point where he says they won't be there. It's not going to enter in. Perversion is rampant. Pornography floods our phones, our televisions, computers. It's everywhere. And many people are hopelessly addicted. They cannot stop. They want to stop. They would love to stop, but they cannot because Satan has them bound. We can only imagine the damage that it will do to the marriages and families of young people growing up today. We can only imagine this next generation. You think you think that there's struggles in marriages today. I'm telling you, when you raise up a generation of young people who from the time they're four, five, and six-year-old have complete access to pornography all the time in the most just perverse things, and you think that, I'm telling you, it's going to wreak havoc on marriages and families. I was reading an article not long ago, and it talked about the effect of pornography on young men. And you'll have young men who have a beautiful wife, a beautiful wife, or even not even a beautiful wife, a beautiful girlfriend. So it's not after they're married, they'll have a beautiful girlfriend. They do not want to have sexual relationships with her because they've watched so much pornography, she doesn't do anything for them. And they would rather sit around and look at more pornography than to have a living, you know, a beautiful woman beside them, a beautiful wife, or even if they're not saved, a girlfriend beside them who they can sleep with. But they, they're not interested in that. They would rather watch pornography. Married people are having affairs at unprecedented numbers and justifying it by vilifying their spouse. Well, he or she doesn't really love me. We weren't meant to be together. Or I made a mistake getting together with her or with him. They lie to themselves to ease their conscience and make themselves a victim when before God they're the perpetrator. They see themselves, I'm a victim. I'm a victim. You did this to me, so I have to go out and violate my vows. No, you're a perpetrator. They're a perpetrator. Let me remind you, there are going to be people who spend eternity in hell because they choose the pleasures of sin. A lot of times we don't hear that. We'll say, well, you know, it'll mess up your marriage. I was at the rehab. They had a banquet. And the people who got up and testified, three people got up and testified. And all three of them said this very same thing. Things were cool in my life till I was 10 years old. At 10 years old, my mom and dad divorced. And when my mom and dad divorced, things began to go downhill. It was then they started to start smoking and start drinking a little bit and all of these other things. Each one of those three men who stood up all said the same thing. They all said the same thing. Things were cool in my life until my parents divorced. So there's some who are going to be eternally separated from God simply for pleasure. Christians are divorcing at an alarming rate for no reason. I'm 
God doesn't say that to reason. I'm not happy, so what? A lot of days I'm not happy either. Let me just tell you. In your job, you say, well, I'm not happy. Well, you know what? There's a lot of things i got to do where I'm not happy either. I bet you all of us have some things that make us unhappy. Okay? God's concerned about your holiness. He's not always concerned about your happiness. But we don't get along. We'll learn how. Learn how to get along. There are two biblical reasons for divorce, according to Scripture. Adultery and abandonment. Your spouse cheated on you or your spouse abandoned you. If you divorce for any other reason and get married, Scripture says that you are committing adultery. God says, I don't change. A pastor, everybody's getting divorced. We're not beating up people. I'm just telling you that God's desire, His plan, is for you to work things through. His plan is for you to care for one another and love one another. He says, if you divorce for any other reason, He says you're committing adultery. God's not changed His mind on that. I want to say this too. So many times when we talk about things, I'm going to hit on an abortion in just a minute. Our purpose is not to condemn people. If anyone hates divorce, it's somebody who's been through it. If anyone knows the pain and the horror of abortion, it's someone who's been through it. We're not condemning. I'm just saying to you, as we move forward, you can't go back and undo any bill that was wrong. You can't undo it. But I'm telling you that it's not God's will for our young people to abort their babies. I'm telling you, it's not God's will for our families to be destroyed. Now, in a little over a week, citizens across this country will be able to go to polling booths and cast a vote for the direction of this nation. We have the great privilege and responsibility to be involved in electing officials who will establish laws, select Supreme Court justices, and govern this great nation. The Bible says in Proverbs 14.34 that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Now, there are some people who say, Well, God's in control. He'll do what he wants. It doesn't matter what happens, what takes place. He can still do whatever he wants. There's some truth to that, but there's a lot of stupidity to that too. God has given you and I, each of us, a responsibility and an opportunity for input. Not every nation has that. Not every people have that right. We do. It's kind of like raising a little girl as a dad with a little girl. As a dad, I'm going to do all I can to protect her. I'm going to love her. I'm going to sacrifice for her. I'm going to do my best. I may be flawed, and you might be flawed, but I'm going to do my best to set the right direction for my daughter and for my son as well. I'm going to teach her. I'm going to point her in the right direction. When I see her do something wrong, I'm telling you, I'm going to smack her hands. Why? Because I love her. I'm going to discipline her. Some people, I'm going to keep away from her. I don't care what you think about it either. I don't care what they think because she's my little girl, and it's my responsibility to protect my little girl. There are places she won't go. I don't care if the other pastor's kids let their daughter go there. My daughter's not going there. I don't care if she gets mad at me either. She's not going there. I'm her dad. God put me in a place to raise a godly young lady, not to raise a tramp, not to raise a rebellious person. He put me in a place, and he's given me his word to raise up a godly young woman. There are places she can't go. There's things she can't do. And all during that time, I'm going to be praying, and we've been praying, God, we need you. Oh, God, protect my family. God, 
Lord, watch over my children. Lord, would you keep them? Lord, would you give me wisdom? Lord, would you not let me pass on my flaws and my inadequacies to them? Lord, would you please make up for me where I fall short? God, I need you to help me. I'm not going to leave my daughter to her own devices. Well, God's in control. He'll take care of her. I'm not going to introduce her to the local heroin dealer and say she can make her own decisions. No. She doesn't get to sleep over at the pedophile's house. She doesn't get to go on dates with the local pimp. In fact, if they come around, I'm taking a ball bat and I'm chasing them out. She doesn't get to decide if she attends school or not. Some people say, it don't matter. God is in control. He'll take care of things. Friends, that's utterly stupid. That's stupid. He's given you a responsibility. You have your part. And if you don't do your part, you are accountable to God. When you fail to carry out your responsibilities, then everybody has to talk about everybody's rights. But when you take care of your responsibilities, you don't have to worry about people's rights because things go the way that they're supposed to. Okay? So as a church and as individuals, we have responsibilities that we are accountable to God for. To neglect them. It's utterly stupid to neglect your responsibilities and think, oh, God will take care of everything. No, he's placed you in a position of leadership. He's given you a voice. He's given you wisdom. He's given you insight. We also have a responsibility as citizens of this country to be involved in directing. We can't direct at all. You can raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and some of them are rebellious. You don't have control over everything that they do, but you're responsible to do your part. We also are responsible. How do you think God felt about Sodom and Gomorrah? I think he showed how he felt. He brought judgment upon it. Was he cool with it now? Well, maybe he's changed his mind. You know, this is 2016. We're really enlightened. You know what we found throughout history? Go back and look through history. All of these enlightened people who turn away from God's commands bring destruction upon their own civilization. They bring destruction upon their nation. They bring a downfall upon their people. The people suffer because of their sin. How do you think God felt about Israel offering their babies as sacrifice to Molech? Well, we know how they felt. What they would do is there would be some who would follow Jehovah, but they would also, on the side, they would offer up sacrifices to the idols because they thought that the idols would, not most of them were fertility gods, and they thought that the idols would bless them with rain. It was really financial blessing is what they were looking for. How many families, how many people, because, well, this will be a hardship upon our family. This will be difficult. Give up the life of a child, their very own, their very own child. God brought judgment upon the nation. He said, I never even thought you would do something like that. How did he respond back then? He brought judgment upon them. Has he changed his mind today? Has he changed his opinion? Is he now because it's 2016 and because someone's inconvenienced and listen to me? I'm not talking to people who've made mistakes in their lives. We're not condemning you. Because if you confess your sins to Jesus, he forgives you of your sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't stand as your accuser when you repent of those things. I'm saying, as a nation, should we be promoting, should we be promoting the taking of children's lives? Is God going to be delighted in that? Oh, let's see, I'm looking for some people. 
Let's see if I can find. And should we be surprised? I'll tell you this. Should you be surprised? Should you be surprised that a teenager, a 15-year-old kid, will take a guy and put it up to the head of a kid who beat him in a fight and blow his brains out? Should you be surprised at a kid who will do that, at a society that will do that, when we have political leaders who stand up and fight, fight for the right to kill eight-and-a-half-month-old babies inside the mother's womb? And they're standing up and they're saying, if you say anything bad about that, you're a hater. That's what they're saying. You're a hater. You're a bad person. You're evil. And if we're just saying, no, there's something better. God's got something better for that child. Don't be surprised. Let me tell you what. Don't be surprised when you see the school shootings. Don't be surprised when you see the kids shooting their own moms and dads. Don't be surprised at that. We got politicians that tell moms, it's okay. It's your right to kill your child because they inconvenience you. So don't be surprised. I'm going to tell you what you do. You expect more of it. Expect more of it. And then let me just jump on this one too. I'm not going to just talk about homosexuals because we've addressed the sin. Sexual immorality. When you sin sexually, people are like, all sin's the same. No, all sin's not the same, dummy. It's not all the same. That's a lie. When you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. Okay? There's something that when people sin sexually, now, God can forgive, blood covers all sin. But we want to be like, well, you know, I had a, then when I equate, I get aggravated at Jeff. I'm like, well, you know, Jeff, he did this to me. Now, Jeff, there's a difference in me having an attitude towards Jeff and me taking a board and hitting him over the head with it, okay? Now, both of them are sins, but the consequences of the sins. And when people sin sexually, they're sinning against their own body. And sexual intimacy is the deepest gift that God gives a person. And this is what he says. To your wedding gift, you know, some of you got punch bowls. Some people brought some punch bowls. Any of you get them? Like a crystal punch bowl? We got some, didn't we, dear? Yeah, we did. We got a crystal punch bowl. Some of you got like a toaster. Yeah. I needed a toaster. Some of you got a picture frame. You know what God brings to the thing? He says, I'm going to let you have as much sex as you want for the rest of your life. That's what he says. He says, I want you to enjoy. I want you to enjoy your spouse. I want you to enjoy each other. And God makes it pleasurable and fun and bonding for people. But outside of the bonds of marriage, it's destructive. It hurts people. It leaves people devastated. It destroys people's lives. So God says, I'm going to bless you with this, but here's the confines. So as a nation, we're coming to a point where all kinds of perversions, we would have said, guy who does whatever to his private parts and puts in breast implants is a hero for his gender. He's a hero for our country. They celebrate that. Police officers who put their lives on the line, they're horrible people. Military men who get their legs blown off and their arms blown off, they're not even considered. We don't even have the money. We don't have the money to give them health care and take care of them. But we elevate some twisted guy who's truthfully mentally ill. Now, we're not beating up homosexuals. We're not saying be mean to them. I'm just telling you that God said, just like adultery, he says it's wrong. God says the same thing about homosexuality. So if you're messing around with your girlfriend, you're here today, you're messing around with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, it's sin, just like homosexuality is a sin. But we're not going to promote it. And what we have is we have a nation who gets up. We have political leaders who want to get up, and their main points are. Third debate, I encourage all of you to go home and look at the third debate, the beginning of the debate. What's important to you? Continuing to fund Planned Parenthood, killing babies. A woman's right to choice. I'm saying, I believe 
things are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender rights, the rights for abortion. That's the primary focus of the thing. Now, I want to ask you something. As we look forward to the future of our nation, when you go in, you're going to pull a lever in a week. You and I as believers have to look to God. I don't think God wants us paying crazy amounts of taxes. I think the Bible says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. I think the scripture teaches us this. God said to the people of Israel, I want to be your leader, but if you choose a king, they're going to put heavy taxes on you. You can be assured of it. Now, I don't know if God cares if you get paid 18% or 15% taxes. I don't know that he really cares, but I do know he cares about this. I know he does care about human life and shedding innocent blood. I know he does care about holiness and righteousness. And whenever, before you go in the boat, I'm going to ask you, do you pray and you talk to the Lord and say, God, have you changed your opinion on it? Is it cool now? And I want to say this too. You may have a relative or a friend who's living in sin or immorality. We just kind of get used to it. Well, I want to say something to you. You need to ask yourself, God, have you changed your opinion on it? Is it okay now? I don't have to beat them up. I don't have to shove the Bible down their throat and get them down and pull their head back and put my knee in their back. I don't have to do any of that. But I don't have to say that what is evil is good. I don't have to say that God no longer judges. That's what we started at. God's going to. He still says that things are right and things are wrong. He still judges sin. And as a people, if we look forward to the future of our nation, you have an input in that. You may not be able to control all of it, but you can do it like I did as a dad. I did everything I could, and I prayed my heart out. God, please fill it for me. God, please help me. God, I desperately need you. And as a nation, we can say that, Lord, we've sinned. We've made mistakes. But God, we're not going to call evil good and good evil. We're going to use our influence and our input and our voice. If I kept my mouth shut to my children about the ways of God, I would be responsible to God for that. And I'll say this to you, if we keep our mouths shut, we we'll to argue with people about political, I don't care what party you're in. We we'll have to argue about that. But there's biblical principles, and if you violate them, as a nation, we and our children and our descendants will suffer. So my prayer is this. God, turn our hearts and turn our nation back to you. It starts by recognizing sin and the need for him. So, Father, today I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us as your people to turn our hearts back towards you. God, it's so easy to drift. It's so easy to be enticed by the things of this world. Father, I pray in your name, pray that you'd set people free. Lord, we pray for the man or the woman who's addicted to pornography. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to their heart. Whether here in this building or out in the world, it's destroying marriages, it's destroying homes. God, some men and women are getting involved in stuff that's leading to jail time, to crime. I pray, God, that you'd break the hold that pornography has on their lives. God, I pray for the wife who's dissatisfied, who even today is out sneaking around and betraying her relationship, her vows to her husband, or the husband who's on the prowl looking for some other woman to make him feel important, valuable, Lord. God, I pray that you would awaken him. I pray that you would awaken her, wherever they're at, 
pray that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction on their lives. God, I pray for the young person who says, well, God, you gave me this desire. I want her. I want him. God, I pray that you teach them to speak to their heart and give them self-control. Help them to flee from temptation. Lord, I pray for the young man or the woman who's battling homosexuality, Lord, feels that they're created that way. Lord, give us a heart of compassion for people. Help us to love them like you love them, God. Help us not to be critical or hateful. Help us not to be judgmental. But Lord, give us a heart that burns to see their lives changed and to see them set free. Lord, help us not to be quiet, but to allow you to speak through us. I know in a room like this, we got people in this room. It's just the statistics would say that we have women in this room who have had abortions, Lord. And their hearts are heavy and they feel condemned. Lord, I ask you to give them peace. I ask you to heal their brokenness. I ask you, Lord, just to be near to them, Lord. And we have men in the rooms like this, Lord, who encourage their girlfriend or their wife to have had an abortion. Lord, they're guilty too. It's not just the wife, not just the girlfriend. I ask you, Lord, that you would heal their hearts. I pray there would be true repentance, Lord. I know we can't change those things, but I pray, God, there would be true sorrowful repentance before you. I pray, Lord, that we would take a stand and we wouldn't believe the lies of the enemy that says that you just accept anything today. Lord, turn our hearts back to the old paths, to your ways, and be with us, I pray. We ask for divine intervention, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Don't let this word be wasted. Let it find a good place in people's hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name.